from Luke 12, 49 through 59. And Jesus said this, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Please be seated while we pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Please bless its reading today. Please give us your spirit to apply it to our hearts, to help us to believe your promise, and to take serious account of your warnings and instructions in this passage. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Um, well, the first time we didn't baptize my daughter Ruby was because my wife got a leg infection, and this time was just a miscommunication on my part. So we're over two right now. If we really land it next time, still a decent batting average. Um, it's like 33%, I think. So, uh, we we will baptize her eventually. Sorry about that. Like I said, that was a miscommunication on my part. Uh, this is about as loud as I can talk today, and. I'm going to try to stay pretty monotone. I hurt my throat earlier in the week. Um, I apologize that it's boring, but I just am going to try to stay here so I can actually make it all the way through the sermon. Um, I know normally I'm really exciting and loud, but this is the best I can do. Uh, as we look at the passage today, uh, just, just by way of introducing it, I think it's important first to note that this is the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus. And we have to take serious account of that. This is not the whole Jesus, what we see here in this passage. But this really is what he is like. This is one picture of what Jesus Christ truly is like and was like in his time on earth. Uh, There are also some difficulties in this this passage. For one, this is not a a letter of Paul, so there's not necessarily just like a cut and dry, this is why, this is why, because of this, this, uh, it's a bit more conversational than that. I think we see that in the example of the first couple of lines with Jesus saying that uh, he came to cast fire on the earth. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He he doesn't necessarily link those things with uh, conjugations and all that, right? But... uh, We'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, and furthermore, some of these, these uh, if you were reading them in your Bible and you have like a, a study Bible or something, 
you'll probably see that each of these uh, sections from verse 49 through 53 and 54 through 56 and 57 through 59 have different subheadings in study Bibles. Um, different commentators will treat these separately or they'll treat uh, 49 through 53 as one, one uh, passage and then 54 through 59 as one passage. And, and that's actually the approach that we're going to take. They're not totally separate, um, but they do seem to be hitting on two different things. And yet there is an obvious uh, connection and theme here between these things. Um, and, and last, uh, as we've kind of been following along in this series, we've seen that uh, essentially what we've been talking about over the last several weeks is instructions on discipleship. And each of these things has a relation to the way uh, that we live our lives as disciples or followers of Jesus. Uh, and so that brings us to actually talking about the text then and, and what it means for us today. This real Jesus and this tension that he brings in the church starts out with division. And that's our first point. We'll follow that up uh, with the second point being judgment and the third point being the real Jesus. And we'll talk more about his person and character. Uh, but right now we'll talk about division and why it is that the Prince of Peace brings division. So that's point one. Uh, we often think of the, the gospel in terms of the peace that it brings. Certainly that's a popular idea among uh, ecumenical movements and um, maybe people who don't know the gospel very well, but maybe even among us. Uh, and it's not entirely untrue. The Gospel of Luke opens with uh, angels singing about the peace that God brings on earth through the birth of Jesus. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Jesus does truly bring peace to each believer. He brings peace between God and man. He puts an end to the war that is between each unbeliever and God. He brings reconciliation and brings peace to consciences that are at odds with God and burdened with sin. But here he says that he did not come to bring peace on earth. And this is a pretty serious and emphatic tone he has here. Jesus says he came to cast fire on the earth. And to get a sense of the tone he has here, actually in the Greek he starts out this passage by saying fire I came to cast on the earth. A baptism I have to be baptized with. These are serious ideas, and he's starting out with kind of an exclamation point here. Despite the fact I can't quite do that right now. Um, so he says that he came to cast fire on the earth, and he links that fire to his baptism of suffering. That is his death, of course. And he implies that the fire is not yet kindled, but it will be soon. Okay, so some have interpreted this fire as a cleansing sort of fire. It's something good that's just going to come and uh, cleanse our sin. And, uh, or, or it's like the flames of fire at Pentecost, and it's simply a representation of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing that he will bring. Uh, and others have thought it may be the judgment that Christ takes on himself on the cross and it seems to me that those are all connected to the fire that Jesus is bringing here. They have a source in him and the fire, actually, that he takes on the cross. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, 
they're, they're connected, but those aren't exactly what he's talking about here. He says he came to cast fire on the earth. He hasn't already cast it. He's not casting it right at that moment, although it, it is beginning this sort of kindling that he's talking about. Um, but he's come to cast fire on the earth. And then he goes on to talk about division among people, and it seems clear that he is talking about the sort of tribulation that even his message brings. We don't often think of the message of the gospel as bringing a tribulation or strife, but it does. It brings a division between people. It breaks into even the most intimate relationships. Uh, it, to better understand fire, if we go back to uh, Luke 3, where John the Baptist is speaking, he says, I baptize you with water, but there comes one after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he goes on to say that uh, that one who is coming will clear his threshing floor. And, and he'll do it with these flames, like a, like a winnowing fan. So the, the picture back there is of the coming one, the Messiah, who's coming to uh, clear off the barn floor to get rid of all the chaff, the, the skins or barks that are separated from the wheat that he has harvested. And he's going to do it with fire. And then he's got this idea of a winnowing fan. So he's talking about really getting the flame going, right? Like if you've ever seen one at a fireplace, like you're really pumping a big winnowing fan. Um, when I was a kid, I put one of those in my mouth and squeezed it and had no idea how much ash and soot there would be in it. But it's not a good idea. But the idea, though, is that it blows up. It puts oxygen on the flame and really gets it really lifted up. Um, it gets the flame burning hot and it clears off the threshing floor of all this chaff that's there, of all this skin that came off of the wheat. And so it is a cleansing fire in a sense. It is a cleansing fire in that it gets rid of the chaff. But it's also a separating fire. It is a fire that separates wheat from chaff or belief from unbelief. And as uh, we could get into, it is also a fire that does cleanse the chaff uh, not only between the believing and unbelieving, but actually purifies the believing. It separates our dross from our gold. It purifies us. It cleanses us and gets rid of uh, everything in us that is not pure silver or pure gold. But here Jesus is still on this separating idea between peoples. And so he's talking about division between relationships. So he says um, that there will be division between people. And I think you could put it this way, what Jesus is saying about fire. I, I think you could put it this way. Uh, Jesus is saying, I came to set the world on fire. I've brought a spark with me that is going to change things forever. Or you could say what the Jews accuse Christians of doing in Acts 17, verse 6. Uh, they're trying to find Paul. They can't find him. So instead, they take his friend Jason and I think a couple of other Christians and they take them before the city officials and they say, you've got to do something about these men who are turning the world upside down. See, the message of Jesus is a radically reorienting message. 
it disrupts our societies, our families, and even as we'll see later, our sense of morality. At least it should. So consider what Jesus says about the family as he's talking about these divisions. Consider what he says about the family in Mark 3, 32 through 35. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, the gospel of Jesus draws a line between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not believe in Jesus. And it draws that line even in the relationships where it hurts the most. It separates. Only along that line of belief and unbelief. And so there is no institution that is safe from that line. There's nowhere that there will not be enmity or strife because of belief in Jesus. Even in one house or family, there will be some who believe in Jesus and some who do not. It's going to be a problem. This is not Jesus giving a relationship talk, telling people to break up with their boyfriends or girlfriends, right? That's like a big thing that happens at Liberty every year. That's not what's happening. This is Jesus saying that because of me, those who believe will be separated from those who don't. He's not saying, I'm calling you to give something up. I'm saying, this is what will happen. This is the inevitable consequence of his message. Division is not what the gospel is about. Please don't misunderstand. Division is not the gospel itself, but it is the consequence of the gospel, that there will be some who respond differently and their responses to the gospel will land them on one of two sides with Jesus. And therefore, it'll land them on one of two sides in regard to his people. So Jesus is saying that there will be those who believe and those who don't believe. And there will be division between them. Again, this is not a decision for us to make or something to give up. This is a consequence of the gospel message itself. There will be division between us and the family, in society, and everywhere. Okay, so what this division is not and what it is. This is not Jesus telling us to be divisive. This is important to understand. This is not justification for us to be grumpy about everything we disagree with, uh, we disagree about with unbelievers. This is not a reason for us to yell at the news. It's not a reason for us to, this is not justification for us to say, oh, you know, if they just saw it my way, they would understand. It's not, this is not a good justification for us to walk around angry at anybody. It is not a reason to reject all attempts that are all, all attempts that are required of you at living in solidarity with other people as human beings. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, that as much as it depends on us, as much as is in your power, you must try to live at peace with other people. 
Don't let the consequences be justification for your actions. That's not what this is about. Okay, what this is, though, it is the reality of the call to those who follow Jesus. It is a call to understand what is in store for followers of Jesus. It is pointing out that there is an inevitable division between people over who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's why this is linked, this division is linked to his suffering. It's, a, it's the fire that is kindled by his own suffering, his baptism of blood. It is the gospel itself which divides people. It should not be our actions, but the two responses to the gospel which divide people. See, the world sometimes understands this better than Christians, I think. They understand that the Christian message means they are not at peace with God. And they draw back from Christians because of that. Uh, they blame us for being at odds with them. And probably often we blame them for being at odds with us. But ultimately, this is not an us-them issue. It's not a who's right, who's wrong issue. Or an issue of exclusion from our side. It is first an issue of separation from God and peace with God. It is first an issue of, of a person's relationship to God. How we respond to the message of Jesus is what puts us on either side of this division between people. So as it relates to how you follow Jesus, are you okay with this? Do you believe that Jesus did not come to make life easier for you? He did not come to heal every relationship or make us happy all the time. He came to save us from our sin. He came to save us from the wrath of God. Do you believe all of that? That he came both to give us peace with God and that the consequence of his message is division between people. Are you prepared for what following Jesus means? For division even within your family? Now some of you have already faced this. Some of you deal with division between your family. Some of you know exactly what this is about and how it feels. And for some of you, that truly is based on who Jesus is. And, and we'll get to that at the end of this message today. But I have this one question for you in this more serious and um, heavy part of what we're talking about. Are you sure that the divisions between you and other people are because of the person and work of Jesus? Or could it be that they are because of your own personal dogmatism, your personality? your refusal to follow the Bible's commands and attempt to live at peace with all people. 
are the divisions between you and other people or your broken relationships because of the gospel message, truly, or for some other reason. Okay, so that brings us to point two, judgment. And this is primarily dealing with verses 54 through 59. Jesus has essentially been talking about his call to discipleship and what the cost of that is. But here he's uh, dealing with something a little bit different, although connected to it, of course. So I want to read this portion of the passage again. Starting in verse 54, he says, he, or it says, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites. Do you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky? Oh, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, as I said before, we're going to deal with this passage um, as being connected and not two separate teachings. Uh, some commentators even, though you see in your Bible probably the paragraph break being between verses 56 and 57. Some commentators actually lump 57 together with the paragraph before, putting, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right at the end of the previous paragraph? But, but again, I, I think what we're dealing with here is one teaching. And so Jesus is using this uh, metaphor or an analogy rather of dealing with the weather or being able to read the weather and the people with whom he's speaking ability to read the present time. So Jesus says here, look, you know how to predict the weather based on the natural signs in the sky. You feel the wind blowing, you see the clouds rising. Right in this, this cloud rising from the west, it would have been from the Mediterranean, the wind blowing from the south would have likely been coming up through the hot desert of Arabia and the Negev. It's all accurate. Uh, but he's saying you can read this, you can feel this and see this and know what's coming. But you can't see what's right in front of you. You can't see who is right in front of you and what that means for the coming times. Uh, in other words, the time is now. The kingdom is here. You are being visited by God, but you don't see it. You know all about the present life. You think about your crops and the weather, but you don't see what is so much more important. What is standing right in front of you? And Jesus is saying, look at what's on the horizon now. Feel the wind that's blowing. The Son of God is here, and the storm that's brewing is far more important and far more dangerous than rain or heat. Um, essentially, there is a break here between their concern with the present life and their concern to deal with ultimate things. Again, there's a, a, a division. 
So uh, concern with the present life is not wrong, right? As Jesus is talking about reading the weather and knowing about the heat and rain, that's all important things for people whose lives really uh, revolved around these things. They didn't have air conditioning. And um, I read in one place that, you know, a scorching heat could, a, a scorching wind could raise the temperature 30 degrees in an hour. That's a big deal for people who are walking around in 85-degree weather already. And rain is a big deal for people whose livelihood depends on rain to grow their crops and not sophisticated forms of irrigation like we have today. And, and so there's nothing wrong with them being concerned with the present life. Uh, we're created to live in this world and in bodies, and we're called to do our daily tasks well. But Jesus is saying, you know how to deal with the world around you, but you don't know how to deal with God. And actually, he calls them hypocrites. This seems like a harsh saying, considering he's speaking to the crowds. That's normally a word he reserves for uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, for Jewish leaders. And yet it says that he's talking to the crowds here. Uh, likely he doesn't mean the same thing that he means elsewhere. Uh, every, every word, and this is important to know when we're speaking and thinking and as we interpret scripture, especially every word has a sort of range of meaning. And it seems like Jesus is hitting on uh, one part of the spectrum of the meaning of hypocrites here with the crowd that he's not normally hitting on when he's speaking to Jewish leaders. But here he's saying, uh, you have one face that seems to be facing toward God. You're a religious people, and yet you have this face that's concerned with uh, temporary things, rightfully so, rightfully so. But the face that seems to be facing God, the, the face that seems to be dealing with God is not truly, because if it were, if you were really looking at the things of God, if you were really considering what is in front of you, you would see what it is I'm here to do. You would see what my coming means. A day of judgment is coming. You're on your way to court, but you're still caught up in what's going on around you. You're on your way to death row, but you're trying to make sure the bathroom is clean or you're wearing the right clothes. Trying to make sure you're shaved and your bags are packed. And for what? He's saying you have to deal with the ultimate things you have to come to terms with God before it's too late. Settle with your accuser before you are thrown into prison forever. Don't be thrown into hell. Uh, sorry, he says to settle with him um, before it's too late. Settle with him before judgment day is here. And what I'm telling you is my coming means judgment day is also coming. But he says here, too, to do your settling through Jesus. That's the message of this passage as a whole, that we ought to do our settling with God through Jesus. Don't be thrown into hell when God himself has provided a way for you to be right with him. Don't be distracted by the world around you. Don't hesitate to make the judgment of who Jesus really is. 
count the cost, certainly. Jesus said to count the cost before following him, but don't dilly-daddle. There's so many people in the world who, when faced with the, the gospel message, when faced with the historicity of Jesus, when faced with dealing with whether or not the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, they say, something happened, but I'm not sure I can know what. I'll need a long time to think about that. I'm not sure we have all the facts. Jesus is saying here, you've got to deal with me now. You've got to deal with me as I've presented myself. Don't waste time. See, the call to discipleship begins with the call to salvation by free grace alone, not for anything we do, not for anything we earn. But it also comes, this free offer of salvation also comes from the judge himself who will not declare you innocent when you reject his call. He won't declare you innocent when you reject his invitation. And so we have this call to repent and believe in Jesus. That is the way to be made right with God. But we ought to take him seriously as he warns us of the coming judgment and do so now. We ought to judge rightly for ourselves. We see uh, a sentence similar to this, judge rightly for yourselves, in Luke 7, when Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee and a woman comes to him and begins crying and washing his feet with her tears and her hair, and the Pharisee is thinking to himself, if he just knew who this woman was, there's no way he would let her touch him. And Jesus looks over at this man and he says, you should have judged rightly. She has judged rightly. She has recognized what's right in front of her. I came into your house and you didn't so much as wash my feet. And yet here she is washing my feet with everything she has, with her hair and her tears because she has recognized who I am. She has dealt with me. She has seen who I am. She has seen that the righteous judge is a merciful Savior, and you continue to put off any decision about me. You continue to seek your own righteousness. You continue to push God's purposes for you to the side. So you judge this woman, and you should have, you should have discerned what was right in front of you, that here I am offering salvation, and you just keep going ahead, wanting to save yourself and and deal with God on your own terms. And so we see that we have to deal with God. We have to deal with him truly as he is, as both a judge and savior. And so for many of us, we think, well, okay, that's what was going on. That's what Jesus was saying to them then. He was their sign on earth about what was coming, but he's also our sign about what is coming. 2,000 years later, Jesus is not standing in front of us. He's floating in space somewhere, as odd as that is. Um, but he is still, as he's testified in the word to us, he is still that sign of what's coming. 
the coming kingdom of God, which will bring with it both salvation and judgment, and we must respond to it. And we must not think that because it hasn't come yet, it's not coming. This is still the message to us that we must repent. We must respond to the message. We either accept the invitation or we reject it. We say Jesus was a liar and a pretender and we reject his message. Or we say, no, he's the judge and he's a merciful savior and we accept his invitation. See, this judgment has not come yet for a reason. A second Peter 3 Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He hasn't been kept from coming back. It's not that He's not coming back. It's not that He's unable to come back. It's that he's waiting on you to repent. He's waiting on all those who have not dealt with him yet to deal with him. He's holding back his wrath so that he can continue to hold forward his grace and mercy. Okay, that brings us to our third point where these first two points come together. And that is the real Jesus. And we have to deal with the real Jesus. Um, we like to think of Jesus as just this like nice white guy with Bambi eyes and light brown hair um, who never says anything mean. We don't like to think of Jesus as warning sinners that they really will die forever flames. We don't like to think of him as telling us that if we're going to be Christians, it's going to cost us a lot. We certainly don't like to think of Jesus as the red-eyed, shaking cleaner of the temple. And yet we have to deal with the whole picture of Jesus, that he has come shouting judgments, calling people hypocrites and serpents tipping over tables and making whips and eating with sinners in their homes and touching the unclean with his own hands. We have to take both into account. Of course, the example is for us to do likewise, uh, not necessarily to do exactly what Jesus did. He's God and man, and we are just man. We're just human. We must recognize that he's not just like us, except better, he's different. And yet, as truly human, he did live an exemplary life for us, something to be followed. But again, this isn't a reason for us just to be divisive. The example that's set here for us is this, that the gospel itself is divisive. We have to accept that and know that. We have to be prepared to live with the consequences of the message that the church continues to proclaim. But then, uh, moving beyond the example of Jesus, moving beyond imitating who he really is, and getting to, again, who he really is, 
He is holy and gracious. It should be important to us that we don't think of these two things as separate. Like there's holy over here and then there's gracious over here. It's not that like one part of God is over here and one part of God is over here and that they just live in tension with each other. What the whole of Scripture teaches us about God is that He is uh, simple. And I don't mean that in the worst way, I mean it in the way that He is one. He is undivided. He's not made up of parts. Holy really is the best word. Well, I didn't think of a whole lot of other words. Right now I'm saying that's probably the best word to describe God for what we're talking about right now. He's not He's not saying, over here I'm wrathful and over here I'm gracious. He's saying, he's holy. God is holy and in his person, in his wonderful person who is just, he exacts justice and has mercy. That's why it's important to understand the gospel of grace against the backdrop of the coming wrath, against the backdrop of sin against the backdrop of our own depravity and wickedness. We have to understand how bad we are. We have to see what dealing must be done with God. We have to see what it is we're being accused of by our accuser. We have to see when we talk about the last penny being gotten from us, how severe that is. And by the way, that's not to say that there is a chance once the judgment is made of having the last penny paid. This is not a teaching on purgatory from Jesus. Rather, he's saying that the payment will never be made. The judgment will continue. The punishment will go on and on and it will never be truly paid. When we understand God's holiness and wrath, then we began, began to understand how important the gospel is. Uh, we passed by this bit about Jesus' baptism earlier, but I want to go back to that because I think it's what really helps us tie a lot of this together. Jesus said he came to cast fire on the earth. Or again, rather, fire I came to cast on the earth. And then he goes on and says, baptism have I to be baptized with. What's important to note here, baptism does not mean immersion. That's a part of our being a Presbyterian church. We don't believe in being dunked under the water. It's a fine way to baptize. It's not necessary. The mode is not the thing. Baptism is often interpreted, uh, sorry, translated as baptism because it means baptism. And so here Jesus is saying, I have to be baptized, but he's already been baptized. He's talking about his baptism in blood. He has to pass through his judgment still. He has to pass through this awful separation from God and this suffering on the cross. See, Jesus is talking about the baptism of his suffering and as I said earlier, we would deal with those who truly have been separated from others 
truly have been divided from others, even in their most intimate relationships because of the message of Jesus. Maybe the one, of, one of the best answers we can give to dealing with that is, is just this question. Does it help at all to know that Jesus brings division to your relationship? When you consider how much it cost him to bring reconciliation to your relationship with God. The cost of discipleship often has this consequence of being divided from other people, and it is a great cost. But is it worth it when we consider the separation that he went through? When we consider how it was that he bore our sins for us? Is it worth it that he was baptized in suffering? That he took on our judgment? He says he is bringing a judgment to earth. He is casting a fire on the earth which will separate, which will judge, which will clear the, the threshing floor. And yet for those who believe in him, he has taken on the judgment himself. He has gone through the fire himself. He's been baptized in this suffering and in this fire. In his call to deal with God. In his call to repent. In his call to stop putting off dealing with who he is and what it means. And thinking about his judgment. In his call to finally deal with ultimate things and stop worrying yourself and concerning yourself with the things only of this world, does it help to know that Jesus has dealt with God already? Jesus' words for us today are hard. But even, even this fire that he came to cast on the earth, the indication in the text is that he he is the one who kindled it. The gospel message is what divides, but the gospel message is that he took on our suffering on the cross. The thing that divides is this message about him suffering for us. And so in our broken relationships, And in our call, this serious call to deal with God, we should consider and believe in this open invitation that Jesus has already dealt with God for us. And that while there are consequences to this message, look at the message itself. Deal with the message itself. And consider if the costs are worth it. I think you will find that they are. We will find as we look at them a suffering Savior. This isn't the Jesus that people expected. He didn't bring the type of peace on earth that his disciples and many of his followers wanted him to bring. He certainly didn't bring the type of peace Pharisees and Sadducees wanted the Messiah to bring. He didn't crush the Romans and bring a peaceful kingdom for Israel. Not at that time. What he brought first is peace with God. 
by being the Messiah that they didn't expect. By being someone else entirely that they had to deal with. They had to deal with the fact that he was different than they thought he would be. And yet he was so much better. So as we think about these calls to discipleship and the consequences that the gospel message has, let's deal with Jesus as he is and let's believe in him. If you have not already believed in him, consider what he's offering here. If you have believed in him, continue how great the prize is before you, how wonderful the person is who has called you to the calling you have, and keep believing. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll continue our worship and song. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see what you have for us here in your word today. Help us to deal with Jesus as he is. Help us to see him clearly as both merciful and dealing with sin. Help us to see him as holy. Give us grace to trust him and to obey him. And in his name we pray, amen.